Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 13. So the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. And so the question is, okay, they've been delivered. Well, now what? And chapter 13 really deals with the now what? Uh, there's two things that is going to be lifted up or, or in, uh, they're going to learn today is, is first of all to remember uh, and then to follow. Two simple commandments, remember and follow. First of all, remember how you were delivered, remember why you were delivered, and remember who delivered you. And the, we're going to talk about that as we go through our, our study. And so beginning with verse 1, of chapter 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb above, uh, among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. If you're not familiar with the term consecrate, it basically means to set apart. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, that when we get down into verse 12. So we're going to continue on here in verse 3. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten uh, shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And so the first thing the Lord is trying to impress upon his people, the children of Israel, is they were to remember how they were, to, uh, how they were delivered. In fact, they were to pass it on to the next generation and, and just keep it... Uh, keep on remembering how the Lord delivered them. Well, how did the Lord de deliver them? He says it here, by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. You know, there was three sets of three plagues that we talked about there in the earlier chapters in Exodus, followed by the 10th, which was the death of Egypt's firstborn. And after each uh, plague, and after each set of plague, the Lord gave uh, Pharaoh opportunity to humble himself and repent before the Lord. And each plague was a direct assault on the power of the false deities that Egypt worshipped. They worshipped many deities. And, these, and we went through this as we were going through these earlier chapters. These plagues challenged their belief in their deities that they worshipped. Each plague also revealed uh, Pharaoh's utter inability to keep the children of Israel in bondage. They were going to be released. And then finally, each plague revealed God's power and his ability to deliver the children of Israel. So with a strong hand, he delivered them. You know, think about it. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. 
they were as slaves, I mean, they were powerless. They were unable to deliver themselves from the power of Egypt over them. And so God came down and God delivered them. He raised up Moses and delivered them with a mighty hand. You know, if you think about it, we are unable to deliver ourselves as well from the power of sin and death. So what did God do? Again, God came down. He sent his son to grow up to be a man, to, to die on the cross for us and to deliver us from our bondage. And I, li I like what Paul says, Ephesians 2, 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead and he made us alive. In Romans 5, 6, Paul says this, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, like those slaves in Egypt, unable to deliver themselves, we're unable to deliver ourselves from the power of sin and death. And so in the due time, Christ died for us. And then Paul also in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you think about it, God delivered us with a strong and a mighty hand as well. And what did the children have to do to be delivered? All they had to do was they had to believe that the Lord would deliver them that night, and then they would have to apply the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts of their home there. For you and I, what do we have to do to be saved? We simply have to believe what the Lord tells you and I as well, that we're sinners. We need to acknowledge we're sinners. And then we receive uh, salvation by applying the blood of Christ to each one of us, to our hearts. Uh, you know, and how do we do that? We repent of our sins. We ask for his forgiveness, and then we invite him into our homes, into our hearts, to be our Lord and our Savior. That's all that we do. The, he does everything else. He does the delivering. And so they were to remember how they were delivered. Then they are to remember why they were delivered. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites." Why were the children of Israel delivered? They were delivered in order to be set free from bondage, uh, from their bondage, and to be brought into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob generations earlier, years earlier. You and I, we're delivered to be set free from our bondage to sin and death and to live in the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You know, some people think, well, Jesus was just a good, a good teacher or philosopher. He was one of many, you know, prophets and stuff. He didn't come to give us a good lecture on how to live or, or how to be happy in life. No, he came to save us from our sins. That's the only reason why Jesus came to die on the cross for us, to save us from our sins. Romans 8, 2, For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus did set me free from the law of sin and death. And Jesus himself said in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life, may have it abundantly. 
So the way they were to remember the, their deliverance was to observe the Passover. Now we talked about the Passover in chapters 11 and 12 and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they were to do that throughout their generations. He says there, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And as we studied last week, you know, eating that unleavened bread, what, what it was to remind them basically that they had to leave Egypt in haste. They didn't have time to let their... Let their uh, bread properly rise and so they weren't to have any yeast in it well later on in scriptures the lord's gonna there's a principle that's going to be brought forth and that is the principle that leaven is a type of sin or a picture of sin and so the idea is that they were to and of course us as well were to turn away from sin and so he says, don't eat leavened bread during this week don't don't participate don't practice sin and then he says, don't even let leavened bread be seen among you. You know, you could just imagine some, some person there, you know, they're, they're, they, they've heard the command and yet they've got this lump of, of halal bread dough rising in their, in their house, you know, and, and Moses may be like, what are you doing? Well, wait, wait, it's rising, but I guarantee you we're not going to eat it, you know. And he says, don't even have leaven in your house. You know, as a, as a pastor, I, I don't know how many times I've counseled uh, couples that are getting married and, and Christian couples, and, and I've, I've run across them. Maybe you have too. Uh, many Christian unmarried couples, and yet they're cohabitating. They're, they're living under the same roof. And, and when I'm aware of that, I'll, I'll usually talk to them. And, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, hey, what are you guys doing? Don't you know that, you know, that you're, that's sin, basically. And, and more than often, in fact, probably every time, they'll say, I assure you, <laughs> we're not sleeping together. You know, we've got all these different arrangements. And, and that may be true. And I like to give people the, the benefit of the doubt. But the problem is the world sees you, and they, don't, they can't tell the difference. They just assume you're like them. And so your testimony is pretty much shot. So we're to even avoid the appearance of evil. And so Moses says, don't even have leaven in your house. Just don't let it even be seen among you. And they were to remind their children. He says, and you shall tell your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. They were to remember that they were set free from bondage. It was to be constantly on their minds and in their hearts. In fact, everything they did, everything they saw, everything they thought was to be viewed in light of their deliverance, he says, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Well, how do you and I, how do we remember our deliverance from the power of sin and death? Well, one of the things we did last week is participating in communion. It's, it's basically like the Jews celebrating the Passover. As Christians, we celebrate communion. We remember that Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, was slain for us. The second thing that we're to do, and Paul, I think, does a great, great job of describing it, in Romans 6, verses 11 through 14, he says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We're to reckon ourselves. It's to be, our deliverance is to be on the forefront of our minds that, hey, I've been set free. I'm, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to, uh, to God in Christ Jesus. Now, for the children of Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was for one week each year. But for you and I as believers, we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus daily. In fact, moment by moment. It's a constant thing. I've got to keep on reminding myself, hey, I'm dead to sin. I'm, I've been, I'm, I don't have to do that anymore. I've been set free from, by Jesus Christ. And so for us, it's a moment by moment thing. And then they were to remember who delivered them. Verse 11. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Remember, your kids are going to ask you about that. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man uh, among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Remember back in verse 1 there. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Who delivered them? The Lord delivered them. The firstborn of the children of Israel had been spared the destruction of the firstborn of Egypt. And the Lord in his mercy and in his grace provided a substitute for them by way of the Passover lamb. And as a result, they were to remember their deliverance and remember their deliverer by setting apart their firstborn uh, males to him. He says, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So it wasn't only their sons, but it was their animals as well. So the firstborn males of all the children of Israel were dedicated to the Lord and to his service. Now later on, in fact, it won't be too much later on, uh, the males of the tribe of Levi would be dedicated to the Lord in place of all the other tribes, the firstborn males of all the tribes. But at this point, it's of all the tribes. All the tribes are included here. However, even though the Levites later on will be the tribe that their males are dedicated to the service of the Lord, the firstborn males of all the other tribes still had to be redeemed. And later on in Numbers chapter 18, we'll find out that that redemption price will be set at uh, five shekels of silver. But not only were their male sons to be, of the firstborn would be set aside to the Lord, but their firstborn of their flocks 
would be sacrificed to the Lord. Of course, none of the sons of the children of Israel would be sanctified, right? They, they are, would be sacrificed. They'd be uh, redeemed because God has never condoned uh, human sacrifice. It was never condoned by the Lord. In fact, it's one of the reasons why uh, the Lord later on is going to command the children of Israel when they get into the promised land to totally destroy the Canaanites. And people have a problem with that. It's like, why would God kill innocent men, women, and children just so that the, the Jewish people can have that land? Well, that the Canaanites, you can go back and look at the history of, the, of their culture, they practiced human sacrifice rampantly in their culture. They were very immoral in, in many different ways and, and cruel and wicked in their ways. And so God was uh, dealing with them, judging them at this point. You know, if you think about it, abortion really is kind of like the modern day equivalent of human sacrifice, uh, human child sacrifice. And, and, and I'm so thankful that, you know, we have a president that's, you know, he's he's doing things. He's He's been fulfilling a lot of his promises, and, and he's probably one of the most pro-life presidents we've had in a long time. So you pray for him. You may not, maybe you don't like him, but pray for him, because God has him there for a reason. And I keep thinking, you know, okay, the Canaanites, they had about 400 years before the Lord finally judged them. And I wonder, how long does the United States, how long does our culture, our generation have? Because we're sacrificing humans as well through, through abortion. Interestingly, though, he says there, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's, but the f every firstborn of a donkey you'll sh you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And you go, well, why is the donkey singled out? I mean, it just, what's, what's the deal with the donkey? Well, I think for us to understand why this is significant, we need to see the typology of the donkeys in the Bible, there's all throughout the Bible, and also uh, uh, the role of them, what, what role they had. And I'm not, we're not going to look at all kinds of verses, but I do have a few I want to look at. Before we do that, though, I want to point out this. Last week, we talked about the Passover lamb, and we said it was a type of Jesus, right? Jesus is our Passover lamb that was slain for us. So the lamb, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, it's a picture of Jesus Christ, needed to be redeemed, or excuse me, the donkey needed to be redeemed by the lamb. So if Jesus is the lamb, I wonder who the donkey is. Hmm. <laughs> well, the donkey, well, my wife would probably tell you. <laughs> I could tell you who the donkey is. No, um, The donkey wasn't a suitable sacrifice, right? Um, its sacrifice wouldn't be accepted, so an unblemished lamb had to be substituted for it. And here's the thing. If, it, if you weren't going to redeem it, and I don't quite understand what the, what the conditions were, but if you decided you weren't going to redeem it for whatever reason, it'd have its neck broken. It's like it's not worth anything. Again, so there's many passages about donkeys, but I want to bring out a few of them. And we won't read them. I'll just, I just have the, the, uh, a few things about it and the references, so if you want to look at the references. But the wild donkey is depicted as an animal that is driven only by their base instincts. And that you can be, see that in Jeremiah 2.24 and Hosea 8 verses 9 if you're taking notes. So it was just, it's just, it's just like an animal. <laughs> it's driven by its animal instincts. Um, a donkey and an ox could not plow together. And I just kind of wonder, you know, what the deal is with that. But when I read that, I'm like, the first thing I think about is, well, we're not to be unequally yoked, right, as believers and unbelievers. And that's in Deuteronomy 22.10. 
The donkey also had to be bridled to be led. It wouldn't follow willingly. It had to be dragged along. Uh, uh, and that's Proverbs 26, verse 3. King Jehoiakim, one of the wicked kings of Judah, one of the last wicked kings of Judah, uh, because of his wickedness, he was to be given the burial of a donkey. So it was just the donkeys weren't looked very favorable upon in scriptures. And this is an interesting one. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, when Abraham is bringing Isaac, he's been commanded to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. He saddles a donkey, and him and his servants and Isaac, uh, they, they go up to uh, Mount Moriah, and, or they get to the base of Mount Moriah, I should say. And when they get to the base of Mount Moriah, the donkey has to remain behind with the servants while Isaac and Abraham go up to worship the Lord. And so the donkey couldn't even worship or be part of the worship there. And so who might the donkey be? Well, I'll be honest with you. I think that the donkey is a lot like me, especially before I was born again, before I had a, a relationship with the Lord, before our redemption. Because that firstborn donkey has to be redeemed by a lamb. Otherwise, it's useless. We talked about last week, everybody needs to be saved. There's, there's no person or culture or anything that they go, well, that's good for you, but I, I don't need Jesus. No, no, everybody needs salvation through Jesus Christ. So if you're feeling kind of down today, you feel like, man, I'm a, I'm a donkey, and uh, I'm just no good for anything. I got good news for you, okay? Good news. First of all, think about this. Jesus chose a donkey to sit upon to ride into Jerusalem. Not only that, God chose to speak through a donkey to get the attention of Balaam. God's speaking through a donkey this morning uh, to speak to you guys. And that reminds me of what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. So if you feel like a, lamb or a donkey today, good news is the lamb was sacrificed for you to redeem you and God can still use you even as a donkey. When we think about Jesus, I mentioned earlier, he's our Passover land who was sacrificed for our redemption. And you think about it, you know, the Bible says that he's the faithful witness, and he says he's the firstborn from the dead. So the, our lamb was the firstborn. And so God didn't spare his own firstborn. You think about it, the scripture says God didn't spare his own son, but he sent him for you and I, for the donkeys. He sent us, he sent the very best to deliver you and I. And so with this, uh, this firstborn, offering this firstborn to the Lord, there's a principle that God's going to start developing and ingraining and, and building up in the, in, the, in the hearts and the minds of the children of Israel and indeed in the hearts of you and I today as well. And the principle is this, God who is first and best should have our first and best. The firstborn should be offered to the Lord. Because we've been redeemed, we're his. 
And so everything that you and I have, it belongs to him. And this is where the principle of the tithe is going to come into play later on. We're to give him the first fruits of our increase. But you think about it, he gave the very best. He didn't hold anything back for you and I. And how often do we hold back from the Lord? We're to offer him the very best because he did that for us. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, he, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for, uh, for, him who died for them and rose again. We're not even to live for ourselves anymore. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, it's, which is your reasonable service. It's the least you can do is to offer yourself to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So once we've been delivered, we're to remember how we're, we're delivered, right? We're to reckon ourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ Jesus. We're to, we're to do communion. We're commanded to do communion. We do it once a month here at Calvary Chapel to remember Jesus Christ and, and just to reflect on that, to have that always in the forefronts of our hearts. We're to remember why we're delivered because we're, we, he came to set us free from our sins, not to be a good teacher, he came to set us free from our sins and to give us eternal life and that life abundantly. And we're to remember who delivered us. We're always to remember it's the Lord who, who delivered us. I belong to him. And so the next thing the Lord wanted the children of Israel to do after they remember is to just simply follow him. Just, it's a simple command, and yet sometimes that could be the most difficult thing for us to do. Look at verse 17. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or night, or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So some interesting things here in following the Lord here, which I think we can apply this morning for ourselves. First of all, as the crow flies, if you were to just get in an airplane and go from Egypt to Canaan, well, that would be probably very short, but if you were to walk as the crow flies, it would be a 10-day journey. I don't think it would take 10 days flying there, but it would be a 10-day journey on foot. It was just 10 days across where they were to go, and yet God's original plan was to take roughly about a year to prepare them for entering the promised land. So they weren't going to go directly there. See, God wasn't only preparing the land of Canaan for the children of Israel, but he was also preparing the children of Israel for the land of Canaan, which is exactly what he does for you and I. He got them out of Egypt. They're there. They're delivered now. But now he needs to get Egypt out of them. 
And you would think the hardest thing would be, you know, the power of Egypt and Pharaoh and everything and his armies. You think that'd be the harder thing to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. That was nothing for the Lord to do. That was easy. But getting Egypt out of the people, that was a tougher, that was a much more difficult uh, process. What was originally to take a year, and we'll study that as we get to it later on in Exodus, it's going to end up taking an additional 40 years and the death of an almost an entire generation to accomplish preparing them to enter the promised land. And had the Lord taken that shortest route, the most direct route to Canaan, it says here they would have passed through the land of the Philistines and they weren't ready or they weren't prepared yet for the battles they would face. The Lord knew that they weren't ready. And so he took them a longer route by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. You know, in your and my life, so often the Lord doesn't bring us directly from point A to point B because we're not ready for life at point B. So he takes us through a journey uh, to prepare us for point, point B. You might say, why aren't I at whatever your goal is or wherever you think the Lord's calling you to and, and yet you're still in this place over here or you're kind of somewhere in the middle. Well, God is using it. He's preparing you. He's, he knows that maybe we're not ready for that, that point yet. And so he's going to work in our lives to get us there as we follow him. Following the Lord involves trusting his timing in our life. And I know that's probably a very difficult thing. It's difficult for me. Lord, why haven't you done this yet? Why am I still here? And yet we need to trust the Lord in his timing. It says also the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now later on in the book of Numbers, uh, uh, the Lord's going to lay out exactly specifically which tribes camp where around the tabernacle and which ones leave first. I can't wait till we get there, by the way, because it's a fascinating study. You might go, well, it's just a, the names of all the tribes and everything and their numbers. No, it's very fascinating because if you were, I used to use this example, if you were to fly over in the Goodyear blimp, well, people are going, Goodyear blimp. Okay, if you were to use a, uh, a drone with a camera, okay, now everybody gets it, right? If you use a drone and you were to go over the encampment of the children of Israel, you'd be fascinated at what you'd see. It's amazing. And only God could pull off something like that. Well, we'll get to it when we're in Numbers. Uh, I don't want to spoil that study, but it's an interesting one. But the point I think here, the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt, is this. Following the Lord should not be confusing. It shouldn't be confusing. God's not the author of confusion. In fact, if you're like so confused in your life right this morning, I can tell you it's not of the Lord that that confusion is. It's not from him. It says, and Moses took the bones of Egypt, or excuse me, the bones, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. That would have been a lot more to take. <laughs> Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from there with you. What an amazing testimony of God's faithfulness, God's promises to Abraham years ago, generations ago. And what an amazing testimony of Joseph's faith in God. He was still in Egypt. And obviously when he was alive, they weren't slaves yet. But he had been, you know, the stories, because 
Abraham's the one that was given the promise. He passed it on to Isaac. They passed it on to Jacob. Jacob passed it on to his 12 children. Joseph knows the story. Hey, we're only here for a short time. God is going to deliver us from Egypt at some point. And Moses, or excuse me, Joseph had the faith that even though he, was, he knew he was going to die, he says, I know God's still going to fulfill that promise. So when he does, not if he does, when he does, man, take my bones with me because this is not my home. I love that. It says, so they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Now Sukkot, there's a festival or a feast of Sukkot, and it's the festival of booths or the feast of booths, and that's what Sukkot means, booths, which you could just, in our vernacular, we could just call them tents, basically. And each place that the children of Israel go to, as we'll study as we go through them, the names are significant. Because God's trying to teach the children and prepare the children of Israel for the land of Canaan. And so, so Sukkot, which means booths, what the, the, the lesson here is, hey, don't settle down. You're in Sukkot. You're just in a tent, man. This is not your home. You're passing through. We're only camping here. And Joseph got it. Joseph got it. To him, Egypt was Sukkot. He said, hey, don't leave my bones here, man. God's... God's going to take you to the promised land. Take me with you. Take me with you. I'm just here temporarily. You know, I'm stressing this because it's such an important thing for you and I to understand this morning. This world, because Egypt's a picture of the world, this world is not our home. We can get, you know, we can start building, you know, building whatever we're building, dynasties or homes or, you know, we're trying to do all this stuff, which is good. It's good to be productive and a, and a part of society and everything and a witness to the people around you. But don't let that become your home. Don't let that become your focus, your goal in life. Because this is all going to burn. It's all passing away. And so Joseph got it. To him, Egypt was Sukkot. Their next stop here would be Etham in the wilderness. And that name, Etham, it means with them. And again, that's an important lesson that the children of Israel are going to learn. The next lesson they're going to learn is that God will be with them. It says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. How many of you know what a flannel graph is? Any of you know what a flannel graph is? There are a few people that do. How many of you are like totally clueless? Don't know what a flannel graph is. There are a few people. Okay, a few hands. Okay. Flannel grass. I was trying to think yesterday, what would be a good comparison of flannel grass? And I'm like, I don't know. I guess maybe like a 1960s DVD, I guess. I don't know. But a flannel graph basically was a board with flannel. That's why it's called a flannel graph. It's a flat board. And in Sunday school, they would have paper like Children of Israel. And uh, they'd give the story like we're going through the story. So as, you know, as you're in Sunday school, they, the teacher would have... Uh, like that. They'd have this group of people, they put it on the flannel board and the flannel graph, and then they say, and they followed the cloud, and they'd have this separate cloud, and they'd put it there. So the children of Israel, just like this picture here, they're following the clouds. See, the clouds off in the distance. That's a misconception. We've been damaged in Sunday school. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a misconception because Psalms 105, verse 39 says, He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. Paul even says this, 1 Corinthians 10.1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. 
See, the, 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 the misconception is that there's this pillar of cloud way off in the distance, and we just got to keep up with that cloud. We got to follow it, you know. And it's, oh, it's going over there. We got to go over there. That's not, that's really not exactly what happened. They were under the cloud, according to scriptures. So how did the children of Israel follow the Lord in the wilderness? Well, part of the time, he led them with the cloud. So if you think about it, all what they needed to do was stay underneath that cloud. If that cloud started moving, you move with the cloud. You know, you, you go wherever the cloud goes. And think about this. In the, in the wilderness, like a desert, it would have been hot during the daylight hours in the wilderness. There wouldn't have been any cool shade. And so as long as they remained under the cloud, man, they had it made in the shade. They were, it was just like easy sailing. They just, just stay under the cloud. If they got out from under the cloud, man, the sun would start to scorch them. Things would get harder to do, as, and then it's like, why am I sweating all of a sudden? Well, it's because you're out from under the cloud. You need to get back under the cloud. You see, for I think there's a, a good principle here. There's freedom in following the Lord. There's freedom in following the Lord. We're to love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. Scriptures tells us that. And then we're to walk by faith. Just stay under the cloud and you'll have it made in the shade. It's pretty, pretty easy. Jesus said in Matthew 11:30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, following the Lord, we talked about earlier, it shouldn't be confusing. And following the Lord shouldn't be burdensome. If you're burdened this morning following the Lord, if it's a real drag, a real bummer for you this morning, um, I got news for you. Maybe you've moved out from underneath the cloud. If you're not exactly where the Lord wants you to be. Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. You love the Lord with all your heart. Just, just He's going to bless you as you go. Well, you go, cool. I could do anything I want then, right? That's what Pastor Don's saying. There's a caveat there. The caveat is this. You still have to be living and walking according to God's word. You still have to be following God's word. See, if you're living a life that's contradictory to God's revealed word, and you might think, well, hey, nothing's happening. I guess I can do what I want to do. You might be under some false shade. I'll give you a perfect example of this, and those that are from California will right away know what I'm talking about. Where I used to live in Southern, or Northern California, I was about a half hour from the ocean. And so weekends, we didn't go every weekend. And once I got older and I had a car, then I tried to go every weekend. But, you know, we go to the beach every once in a while as a family. And uh, I remember, you know, so excited about getting to the beach. And you get there and it's overcast. You go, great, man, this is great, you know. And people always say, hey, be careful. Put sunscreen on. Put, you know, sunscreen. Because it, just because it's overcast, you know, you might get burnt. It was like a false cloud, basically. Because if you spent the whole day under that overcast sky, you'd be burnt to a crisp. <laughs> you guys from California know what I'm talking about. Um, that's, it's it's kind of like that. You know, if you're living contradictory of God's word, and you think, hey, things are cool, nothing's happening, you might be under a false cloud. You might not be under the Lord's. In fact, if you are living contradictory to the Lord's will, you are being falsely deceived into the sense of everything's okay. Be careful, because you might get burnt. I like what David wrote, Psalm 119, 133. Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. 
When I talk about the fact that we have freedom in following the Lord, what I mean is, you know, um, it's maybe a silly example, but I'm going to buy a car. I gotta, I gotta pray and fast over the red car or the blue car. Which car does the Lord want me to buy? <laughs> I don't think it. Maybe the Lord has a directing you to a certain car, but I don't think you have to fast and you know agonize over it. That's burdensome. No, I just you know, Lord, do you want me to have a new car? Can I afford it? Is it the right thing to do? You know all that stuff, and then you just do it, and the Lord will bless you. There's freedom in following the Lord. But if you're sweating and toiling and trying to make things happen in your own strength, maybe you've moved out from under that cloud and the heat of the sun is starting to cause you to sweat. Because again, remember, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I know in ministry, sometimes you can get to the point where it's like, man, you just, this service, whatever it is, you know, we have those volunteer things that Luke brings up that you can do. And, you know, sometimes people do this, man, I just... I can't handle it. This is too tough. Well, maybe it's because you're doing it in your own strength. You need to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow him to work through you. Well, so, okay, there's freedom in following the Lord. Wouldn't it be great if following the Lord was always just, there's this cloud. I just got to, as long as I'm underneath the cloud, I, you know, I got it made in the shade. I know it's cool. It's comfortable, you know, following the Lord. Wouldn't that be great if that was the way the Lord led us throughout life? But you and I know that that's not always the case. And that's what's exampled here. He also led them by night with a pillar of fire. And fire in the Bible, I know it's, it speaks of judgment, but it also typifies and often typifies trials in the Bible. Going through the refiner's furnace. You're in the heat. Things are difficult. But you know, the thing is, the Lord can lead us through those things and sometimes does lead us through those things as well. Think about trials. When I know when I'm going through a trial, that's the only thing I can think about. I can't think about everything else. It's like, you know, in daytime, you're out there in the wilderness, you're under the cloud, you can see the stream over there. If there's a stream, usually not. Sagebrush, okay, cactus, whatever. I can see those things. When I'm in the night and I'm in the fire of a trial, I don't see anything but that fire. All I see is that trial, the thing that's in front of me. It consumes my thoughts. It consumes everything. It causes us to be singularly focused. During the daytime, I don't have any problems tripping over things, right? It's pretty easy. I go, that's a rock. It's, you know, I better watch out for that thing. Um, a rolling sagebrush just rolls by. Hey, it's just a sagebrush. But you know what happens at night? Things take on a different perspective. You know, you can trip over a rock really easily if you're not careful. And that sagebrush that was rolling by, in the daytime, you knew it was just a sagebrush, man. At nighttime, there's a wild animal coming at me, you know. I remember as a kid in California, we, had, we lived in this house, and uh, our neighbors, uh, they, our houses were real close to each other, and there was a retired Jewish man next to us that had a dog named, uh, I forgot the name's dog, I, I, the dog, Pierre. That was the dog's name, Pierre, and a little poodle, and his kitchen doors one of his side doors was right by my we had there was four kids in our family we lived in a three-bedroom house and three of us brothers we had the master bedroom because we couldn't all fit into the small other bedroom so my parents had one of the other bedrooms we had the master bedroom and the bathroom was off to the side and it had that frosted window and stuff and there was a tree that was always 
kind of like scraping. The guy's tree branch was always scraping that window, and you know, his he'd turn on his light at night and call and whistle and clap a couple times and call for Pierre, and uh, so it'd wake you up and you'd be looking at it, be like, man, there's a monster. You know, it looked like T Rex was standing there. It was just a tree branch, right? See, at, at night when you're when when you're in a place of darkness, man, things take on a whole different perspective. And sometimes in trials, things take on a whole different perspective. It's easy to get overwhelmed. But the Lord does lead us in the night by fire through trials. Does it because, does he do it because he's mean? Listen, there's an illustration, I think, in the life. It's in Daniel chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story. They went into the fiery furnace, right? I think this is, might help us understand how the Lord leads us through trials when we look at their story. You'll recall that they were thrown into the fiery furnace, right, for, for refusing to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was furious with them, and so he heated that furnace seven times hotter than it usually was. And they, were, they had all their clothes on, and in fact, they even had turbans and everything, and they're, they're, they were bound with ropes, right? And then they were thrown in, and, and the fire was so hot, the heat was so overwhelming that the servants that had to throw them into the, into the fiery furnace died. They, they died right in front of the furnace. And so these men, it says in the Bible, it says they're, they were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their outer garments, and were, or other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. It says then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Fascinating. Here they're in the midst of a fiery furnace, the biggest trial of their lives, and first of all, they weren't alone. There was a fourth that was the Son of God. Jesus was with them. When you and I are going through a trial, you're not alone. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you in the trial. Secondly, what's interesting is they were loosed in the fire. Remember, they were thrown in, bound. They were tied up. But now they're loosed. They're walking around in the fire. And when they come out of it, their clothes, it didn't even get burned. They didn't even smell like they had been at a campfire. Um, nothing was, was, was affected except those ropes. Those ropes were burnt, burnt off of them. See, God used the fire to free them from being bound. And that's what sometimes the Lord uses trials for in us, to free us up from what's binding us up. You know, during the daytime, under the cloud, 
lots of things to look at along the way. You know, when, when we're traveling cross country and we travel at night, you know, or travel during the daytime, you know, you got lots of things to look at on the way. Then you start driving at night and pretty soon all it's all, you can't see anything. You miss the scenery. But during the daytime under that cloud, it's pretty easy to get distracted. Pretty easy to lose your focus. But when you're in the trial, man, <laughs> that's all that you can focus on, right? And maybe, maybe that's one of the ways that the Lord uses fires the trials in our lives is to free us up from those things that are distracting us so that we'll just be focused on him and what's important in life. Maybe there's something you're bound to the Lord, that you are bound to that the Lord wants to burn away through the trial to free you up. It might be something totally different. Maybe there's something that you're hanging on to and the Lord wants to free you up from that. And so the only way it's going to happen is for you to go through that trial, that fire I know what my inclination is when I'm in a trial. It's probably the same as yours, right? Get out. <laughs> That's getting hot. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to be in here. Our tent inclination is to jump out of the fire, but notice Nebuchadnezzar had to call the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, hey, come on out. The, 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 it's implied that they wouldn't have came out. They would have just stayed in there with Jesus because, hey, I'm free and the Lord's with me. I, I'm okay here. It wasn't until he called them to come out that they came out. Why? Because they were not alone. They were walking freely around in the fire. The fourth person was with him. It was Jesus. Paul, the apostle, understood the value of being led not only by the cloud, but also by fire. And he describes it here. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7. You know that story. It's, it's the thorn in the flesh. The thing, that, the thing that, that, that was buffeting Paul. In verse 7, it says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, uh, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. That's weird, isn't it? I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs. I take pleasure in needs, in persecutions. Hey, bring it on. <laughs> in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You look at the life of Paul, and if anybody was a type A person, I think Paul was a type A person. I mean, that guy was a go-getter. He was restless. He was always on the go. He was ambitious, very self-motivated. In the world, we go, man, that's, that's a, he's a, he's a self-made man. He's an accomplished person. Because, you know, as, as he was in the Sanhedrin before he became a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, he was one of the students that was like the students that, you know, they... At the end of the class, they're the ones that say, teacher, you forgot to assign homework. You know, they're the ones you hate, right? That's the way Paul was, man. He couldn't get enough of studying about Judaism. And so this guy was really a go-getter. In God's world, or excuse me, in the world, that'd be looked at as strength. But in God's economy, sometimes, I'm not saying always, but sometimes that can lead to pride and self-will. Say, hey, I can handle this on my own. I can just do this stuff. Well, Paul's trial burned that away, and it freed him up to be solely reliant on the Lord for his power. That's why he says, man, I, I, I can stay in the fire. I don't, I don't mind the fire. 
Because when I'm in the fire, man, that's when, that's when God's power is revealed in my life. That's when I'm singularly focused on him. Finally, the end here says he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the Lord continued to lead them. It was either through the cloud or under the cloud or through that fire. But he continually led them and he was continually with them. And that's a, that's a lesson that they'll be learning, especially as we get to the next chapter. I want to leave you with a few verses here just to encourage you because I know some of us this morning are probably going through some sort of a fire, some sort of a trial in your life you're going through right now. And that's all you can think about. It's, it's taking up every waking moment in your life. I want to encourage you. The Lord's with you. Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to today, the Lord's with us. Romans 15, 33. I like the way Paul closes a lot of his epistles because I think they're, they're just a blessing. Romans 15, 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. You, you could be going through a fire and yet if you have that confidence that the Lord is with you in it and, and you know, he loves you, and it, you can have that peace that passes understanding. 1 Corinthians 16, 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We don't deserve to not be in the fire, okay? He's like, I don't deserve this. No, we all deserve. In fact, we deserve worse than the fire, okay? It's by God's grace that, uh, that, that he does what he does in our lives. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he says this at the end of his, that letter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us to comfort us, to instruct us, to encourage us. In 2 Timothy 3, 6, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you. So I just want to encourage you this morning. And we can have the worship team come on up. I want to encourage you this morning if you're going through a trial, if that's, if that's the way the Lord's leading you this morning, just be encouraged. The Lord loves you. He's not, it's not, he's not punishing you. He's not mean. There's a purpose in it, and if you just trust him in that. And maybe this morning you're not going through a trial of fire. Maybe you're just, you know, following the Lord in the, under the cool of the shade. Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord for those times of coolness and refreshment. But continue to follow him. Just, just stay under that cloud wherever the Lord's leading you and be blessed because he loves us. I want to have you just stand up, and, and uh, we'll pray, and then we'll do the last worship song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, as you uh, led the children of Israel, uh, Lord, I know that you lead us in the same way, Lord God, and they just needed to follow you and, and just to trust you. And Lord, that's the same thing we need to do this morning. And so I thank you for this lesson in following you, Lord. I also thank you for the lesson in remembering you. And I pray, Lord, that in our lives, Lord, that we would submit all to you. Everything, every aspect of our lives that we would submit to you because, Lord, we were bought at a price. We belong to you. And so we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.